episode 17 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. What is going on, Aviation Nation, and welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin, and I am your host. Today, I am really excited to interview one of my former professors at The Ohio State University. We are talking with Martin Rottler. Martin is an aviation educator. He works for Ohio State. He tries to make Ohio State aviation the best that it can be, and he has been doing a really good job. By the time I got to Ohio State, we talk about a little bit how it was kind of in survival mode, how we didn't know where the aviation program was going to go. We had one or two ways to go. It could go up or it could go down, and Martin has helped bring Ohio State aviation straight to the top. It is one of the top aviation schools, and I would highly recommend anyone check it out. I know I'm super biased, but it is a great school. I want to go ahead and talk about what we talked about in this episode. We touch on why Martin got into aviation, the differences between flying 141 and part 61, why he decided to become an aviation educator instead of an airline pilot. We talk about if Martin has any regrets about not becoming an airline pilot, the opportunities you have when attending an aviation university, and Martin tells his favorite story from when I was a student, and it's it's a pretty good one, so I would recommend you guys give it a listen. Guys, I'm so excited to share this episode. I am so pumped to also share with you that the Pilot the Pilot swag has been released. I am so excited to see what you guys think about that. It should be on our website by now. If you don't know where the website is, it's a link in our bio. It's pilottopilothq.com. If it's not up there, check out our Patreon page and it's there. Click a link and it'll take you there. Guys, thank you so much for just wanting to buy merchandise, for wanting to support this podcast, for all the Patreon supporters that I have. I'm so thankful for you guys. You guys helped me create this podcast and make it the best that it can be. As always, please leave us a review. Go to iTunes. You can DM us. You can comment. Let us know what you think about the podcast, what we can do to make it better, because we're striving to make the best content for you guys to inspire and encourage you to continue or start your training. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to these episodes. I am, like I said, I'm just so thankful and I want to go ahead and get this episode started. Without further ado, here's Martin Roller. Hey Martin, thanks for coming on the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't, it's really funny. You were my professor of my last year at Ohio State. Yeah, back in the day when you were just a wee little college student. Just when I was a wee little college student. Just had no- bright eyed. Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and ready to take over the world. Yeah. And now here you are. <laughs> Trying my best, at least. Well, I'm sure you have some uh, great stories about how I was um, not the best student and more of the athlete type, sitting in the back of class, not paying attention. <laughs> no, nothing of that sort. I'm, you were you were fine. <laughs> That's good to hear. I'm glad. My wife will appreciate yeah. that when she listens to That's- it, if she listens to it. <laughs> That's good. I'll send you the I'll send you the bill for saying such nice things like that. Sounds good. I appreciate that. Well, cool. So let's go ahead and get started a little bit. Why don't you tell me a little bit why you got into aviation? So I have always been interested in the field. Uh, I grew up in Denver, Colorado, actually a suburb of Denver, about a mile and a half away from the Centennial Airport in the Denver metro area. Some of your listeners might know it. It's a huge general aviation airport. Uh, reliever airport for the Denver International Airport. And so I grew up with airplanes flying over my head pretty much constantly from the time I was about three until the time I graduated from high school. So if you were to apply pop culture lyrics to life in aviation, you might say, according to Lady Gaga, I was born (laughs) that way. Um, 
And it was always a thing. Um, I did my sixth birthday party at the old Stapleton Airport in Denver, nice. which probably shows my age, uh, <laughs> which was an awesome experience because in the well before security world, um, we got to go on board an old Continental Airlines 737. We got to go up into the air traffic control tower, then do a full tour of the airport when you're six years old. There's probably not many better places you could do a sixth birthday party. Um, and so that interest in aviation has always, always been there. And it was really kind of solidified when I was 10. And the day after my 10th birthday, my parents bought me an intro flight lesson in a Cessna 172 out of Centennial Airport. And from then on, I was hooked. And uh, my mom and dad had a one of those big over-the-shoulder VHS video cameras that they borrowed from a family member. And uh, the video, my mom's taking one as the airplane's taxiing out with uh, my grandmother on board, actually. And... Uh, <laughs> My mom, you can hear her say the two things. One is, well, we're either creating a monster or burying one. And little did she know the monster that she would create. Um, the other one was, boy, am I glad he went to the bathroom before he left, which, <laughs> you know, sum, sums it up well. Yeah, uh, for sure. From, from then on, it was kind of uh, a path, and it was a destined path. I found out and went to an aviation camp at the University of North Dakota when I was 14, and then again when I was 15. After the 14-year-old camp that I did, or when I did it when I was 14, it was like, okay, I have a goal in mind. I have this idea of wanting to be a pilot, of wanting to get my pilot's license, and I set the goal to do my first solo on my 16th birthday and started flight training after that. And thanks to some very supportive parents, um, I was able to do that and was able to work through high school to be able to help kind of pay for that kind of stuff and other things um, and learned to fly, got my private pilot's license out of a uh, flight school at Centennial Airport in Denver while I was in high school. I did end up soloing on my 16th birthday and it really wasn't a, a choice. It was almost a determining thing based on my aviation camp experience Applied to one university my sophomore year of college or sophomore year of high school, and that was the University of North Dakota. And actually graduated my junior year of high school and went off to North Dakota right after that. Um, and while I was at North Dakota, it was a very interesting, very different environment than what I was used to. Um, I did my flight training under FAR Part 141 in Denver, but it was a lot less structured than. North Dakota's or any other university flight programs 141 kind of path. Um, and there were some struggles with that. You know, you're used to flying for fun um, and, you know, saying, oh, well, this lesson today, maybe we'll go and, you know, let's just go practice some landings or go practice some stalls. And you can't really do that under a very stringent 141 kind of, this is the lesson we're doing today. We must hit these standards and you must continue on on this path. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of kind of growing that had to be done. It was a very structured and regimented environment. Um, and But that said, the professors that I had and the flight instructors that I had were some of the best that I've ever had. Um, and they had a passion for aviation that sh I shared and that a lot of my classmates shared. Um, so I went... To UND, I survived 
UND Winters, um, which <laughs> not easy for your no for your listeners. Um, there is a point where centigrade and Fahrenheit meet, and that is negative forty. Oh man! And I've experienced that. Was there much flying in the wintertime in North Dakota, or was it yes. pretty much yeah? Yeah, uh, they did have a, a lower limit of no fly where it was just too cold. Yeah. Uh, but North Dakota actually had a decent amount of sunshine for the winter time, but it was a very con- misconceiving summer or sunshine because you look outside and say, wow, it's a cloudy or cloudless day. The sun is shining and it looks kind of warm out, but then you look at the thermometer or you make the mistake of walking outside and you realize it's <laughs> negative 10. Yay. <laughs> Yay. I get the uh, pre-flight and airplane at negative 10. Yeah. Uh, we all were very, very happy to fly the Seminole, uh, the Piper Seminole in the winter time because it had the Janitrol heater, Oh yeah, uh, which fired up immediately. And it was the most glamorous thing in the world. Um, but we also had to carry around winter survival kits. So we had to carry around coats and boots, um, because, you know, the question always becomes, what happens if you have an emergency and need to ditch the airplane somewhere? You're not going to be able to be rescued immediately. So all the airplanes were equipped with winter survival kits. We had to carry winter gear with us, um, which was a little bit of a different perspective of someone coming from a little bit warmer Colorado. Um, One of my favorite stories was doing my multi-engine checkride in North Dakota, and it was about negative 10 or negative 15. And... I was looking at the picture of this a few days ago because I was telling someone about it. And there's me uh, with about seven layers of clothes on, standing outside the Piper Seminole. And we had to shut down an engine because it was the multi-engine checkride. And we were at 6,000 or 6,500 feet, uh, feathered the engine. And we were able to climb at about 500 feet per minute. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so cold. And That's awesome. The examiner kind of looked at me and said, well, you do understand if this were the real world, you would have to descend, right? And he said, yeah, yep. Understandable. So that was, uh, it was a unique opportunity to go out and experience that and to fly in a, a very regimented environment is good preparation for what an airline will look like. But it's also, if you've grown grown up flying in the Part 61 world, um, it's also sometimes hard to uh, approach from a perspective of, oh, flying is fun. Um, Because sometimes in Part 141, flying is not fun. Um, And even working for an airline or flying professionally. I'm sure you've probably encountered this time at times too in your professional career where it's like it turns into a job. Definitely. <laughs> and that's and that's one of the struggles that I had while I was there too. There were other challenges that that cropped up during my undergrad experience, some of my own doing, some of the just uh, general environment of the United States and of the world. Um the I encountered a lot of issues finishing up my CFI through UND. Um, they didn't have they're a unique program in the country because they do their CFI training under Part 141. Okay. And at the time, they didn't have the they were flying Piper Warriors um, and Piper Air for their for their uh, flight training fleet. They moved to Cessna 
shortly after I graduated, actually a couple years after I graduated, and then now they're back to flying Piper Archers. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. Right. Uh, but with the Warriors, they weren't able to spin. And so <laughs> UND had on their 141 certificate a couple of super decathlons um, to do spin training for CFI students. But the problem with CFI or with CFI spins and the problem with the super decathlon is um, if you're anything above about 215 pounds or so, depending on the instructor, you're not going to fit in the super decathlon. Oh, no, I'd be out. <laughs> yep. I and I was most definitely out. And I encountered some very odd institutional inertia when I was addressing the problem. And it also coincided with uh, my being a very opinionated opinion writer for the school's newspaper. <laughs> um, so I wrote I wrote an article about it in the school's newspaper. And shortly after the article came out, the university actually purchased a couple of Cessna 150s. Oh, wow. Nice. You used your voice well. I did. I was, and I, they still have them. So I still say, hey, those airplanes, they're, they're my airplanes. I helped <laughs> buy them. Uh, That's but, awesome. Uh, they were the first 150s that UND ever had in their aviation program from 1967 and 1968. Um, and they would have been great for spin training. The only problem was they repainted them and they threw on so much paint and primer that it threw the airplanes out of the utility category. Oh my goodness, are you kidding me? <laughs> They're beautiful airplanes. Although I will say now having um, been at Ohio State, for six years, Ohio State Cessna 150s, we've got two of them now for the flight team, are much better looking. Um, so there's my shout out to the to the OSU flight team and their airplanes. But the UND flight team, yeah, the UND flight team uses those 150s for their flight team competitions. So they can um, thank you for getting those planes for them. Pretty much. So it was a long struggle, and I had to, I would have had to do an extra check ride. I had done an internship with Cirrus Aircraft, which was an amazing opportunity that was built up through connections. You know, and I think you probably heard the lecture in class at least once of the it's not what you know, it's who you know, or it's not just what you know, it's who you know. For sure. In the aviation industry. Um, and the first aviation camp I went to in 2004 or 2001, when I was 14 years old, uh, a bunch of the guys that I went to camp with, we kept in contact over the years. And one of them, uh, we continued to be friends afterwards, and he helped set up an internship with Cirrus in their flight ops department. So I was flying in their flight ops department for about seven weeks over a summer. And in 2007, brand new SR-22s. Wow. It was a terrible experience. What? Let me tell you. No, it's facetious and sarcasm. <laughs> um, no, it was awesome. Like I flew airplanes that had an hour or two hours on the hobs um, and flew in an office with a bunch of amazing pilots who were doing amazing things. And it was 2007. So the economy was going great. Um, they had airplanes orders on backlog. It was my responsibility to fly about 30 airplanes for an hour every two weeks to keep the oil limbered up while they waited delivery. That's a great job. Like, yeah. So it was not just me that flew. We'd go and we'd like dump a hangar and go fly somewhere for lunch because there were a couple of airports that were almost exactly 30 minutes flying time away. Um, or we just go up and fly for fun and go do that. So that was an amazing opportunity that I would not have had had I not gone to aerospace camp and kept in contact with people. So, you know, that kind of changed my 
perspective on the aviation world. It kind of injected a lot of fun in kind of what I was looking at. And I was starting to kind of get ready to graduate. And there were a couple of things. The CFI issues really cropped up. There were some issues with the academics at UND that cropped up for me. Um, and what I ended up doing was realizing, okay, I can do the professional pilot. I can do the aviation management. And I also studied through the honors program at UND. And around late 2007, early 2008, as I was getting ready to graduate, prior to that, the airlines were hiring gangbusters. Uh, it's like today, but even better if you were a flight student because the 1,500-hour rule wasn't in existence. So there were people that were literally going from graduation at an aviation university to the airlines without ever having the flight instructor do any other kind of flying. And that stopped right as I was getting ready to graduate and get out. Yep. And then you started to see 2008 airlines starting to furlough. And the hiring pretty much slows down to a trickle, if that, right as you're getting ready to graduate. So institutional issues, economic issues kind of went, I, don't, I was looking at this going, well, this is different. <laughs> uh, this is odd. Um, this is not so what they said it would be. This is not what they said it would be. This yeah. is not what the glossy brochure. This is not what where, you know, I was flying the year before and I couldn't keep a flight instructor for more than two weeks because they kept leaving. Right. Uh, and now all of a sudden they're coming back to the university. Um, so fortunately, I had gotten hooked up with a professor in the education department through the honors program. And with an aviation professor's help from UND and this education professor, I wrote a thesis that was a proposal for an aviation education program as part of my honors requirements for UND. And that directly led into me applying for and gaining admission to a Master of Science in Education program at UND. So as I say, the jokingly referred to, my sentence in North Dakota was extended for another two years for good behavior. <laughs> That's funny. Poor you. <laughs> and this was, this was a little bit interesting for me because I was sitting at a precipice. I had my commercial pilot's license. I didn't yet have my CFI. I wasn't going to finish my CFI through UND. I was going to have to go somewhere else. And I was sitting at this odd place where I could go get my CFI and I could flight instruct for you know, whatever it was, I could flight instruct for UND, even though there were a lot of issues, they would have hired me because they needed flight instructors. Um, hopefully, I don't know, maybe they would. <laughs> I don't know. I like to think they would have, right? Uh, I was at this kind of point where graduate school comes with tuition costs, and other costs. And I also had the opportunity to get an assistantship in graduate school, it was a service. I worked in an office and the office job, it gave me a fixed income every month. I knew that I was getting X amount of dollars a month. And it also came with a huge tuition waiver that pretty much paid for the cost of tuition for the majority of my graduate school career. But the problem was here I am a 350 hour commercial pilot. I knew I was going to get my CFI at some point. And I knew that I was either going to need to instruct or that I was going to get grad school paid for because you couldn't do both at UND. Their policies, most universities are the same way where it's if you have an assistantship, you're studying full time 
you're working no more than 20 or 30 hours a week for the university in your assistantship. So it was like, well, the financial decision, the financial thought is, yeah, do the assistantship, which is what I did, which allowed me to graduate with far lower debt than if I were to have flight instructed. So right. I had to come up with that tuition. In addition, you know, winter time at UND is feast and famine sometimes. <laughs> same thing in Ohio. Yeah. Same thing in Ohio State. Uh, you know, you also have those months where you work really hard, you make a lot of money flight instructing, and then you have the months where the weather turns terrible and you don't make a lot of money flight instructing. And then you have to find ways to fill the gap with rents and food and survival. The flight instructor lifestyle is not the easiest sometimes, especially in the Midwest and North Dakota. Yeah, yeah it's not. And so, you know, picking up part-time jobs is, is a requirement. And I also had the unfortunate uh, issue of being bit by a travel bug. So I liked travel. So I did pick up a couple of part-time jobs. I worked as a bartender in grad school. I also worked as a blackjack dealer in grad school. Nice. The best part-time job I ever had. Sounds like it. Uh, I took stupid people's money for a living for two years as a bartender and a blackjack dealer. So that works. (laughs) So, you know, though grad school was amazing. It was, it really taught me how to teach. Um, and thanks in large part to my master's degree advisor who forced me to take classes on how to teach. So I took a science teaching method class. I taught in a ninth grade physical science classroom for a semester, um, which was an incredibly fun, weird experience teaching physical science. I had to teach chemistry. And the last time I took chemistry as a class was my own ninth grade physical science class. How'd that end up? Uh, it was a lot of cramming the night before. Probably similar to what students were going through. Um, <laughs> Probably. It was a lot more of an alternative path compared to my friends who were writing out the economic downturn from 2008 to 2010, just flight instructing. You know, when I came out of it, um, I wrote a thesis. I came out of it with a master of science degree. Um, I wrote a thesis, the thesis itself, the undergraduate thesis was the proposal for an aviation education program. The graduate thesis was the actual aviation education program. So I was able to, to kind of keep my industry chops alive that way. Um, I also finished my flight instructor certificate in Denver, um, over a summer while I was there, which was a, a really fun, awesome experience flying a 1980 five or 84 Cessna 172 RG. Oh, that sounds like fun. Oh yeah. Um, the check ride in that plane was hilarious. I, um, was with a guy with an FAA inspector. Um, and we were flying along and I bring the landing gear up after I was like, I only had to do a power off stall and then landings and I was done. So I did the power off stall and bring the gear up from that. And all of a sudden, all the electrical instruments and electrically powered instruments in the airplane start going crazy after I bring the landing gear up. They start blipping and you could hear a blip on the audio system, kind of like with strobe lights. If you're in an airplane with bad equipment, but strobe lights, you can hear them in interference. And so I start going, well, this is landing gear, electric issue. We might have a problem. And of course, it's a check ride, too. So... The first thing your mind goes to when you're on a check ride is, what did the check examiner do to cause this? 
for sure. <laughs> I don't, yeah, they're like, okay, we're gonna. I'm doing my. I'm professional aviator here. Thing. We're gonna pull out the handbook. We're gonna look at the checklists. There's no real abnormal procedures thing. You're going through this stuff. You're looking at things. It takes a couple minutes. And finally, you realize there's no checklist for this. There's nothing. I've never seen this before. And finally, I just kind of shrug my shoulders and go, okay, whatever you did to the airplane, I don't know how to get out of it. And there's nothing in this that shows me what to do. And But here's what I would plan on doing with this. And he, the instructor looked at me, or the examiner looked at me and said, I didn't do it. So... We, we came back in and we made sure the landing gear was down and uh, we, we knew the main gear was down. We just landed very softly on the nose just in case it didn't come down and sent the airplane into maintenance and maintenance came back with their standard could not duplicate. Of course. Uh, was able to get it done, uh, which was really nice. Uh, the funniest thing about the second flight I had to do, I did it with a DPE and I completely whiffed the last landing. Oh, like no. One of the... Standings I have ever done. <laughs> and the DPE, we pull off the runway, and I'm just waiting for the word. You, you, miss, you whiffed it, you messed it up. And the DPE, he actually, you know, he looked at me and he said, Okay, your student just landed like that. Critique him. What'd you say? So I laid out, I said, you know, my airspeeds were a little off. I didn't hold the airplane off long enough. Bounced it. Well, I mean, it was just a, a terrible landing. I critiqued it as if it was a student because it was me and I knew exactly what I did wrong. And so we taxi back, we pull the airplane up to the parking place and get the airplane shut down. Instructor doesn't say anything until the airplane shut down and he looks up and he says, congratulations, you passed. You did a great critique. That's awesome. The landing was within standards of where we were meant to hit, but it was not a professional landing by any means, but he looked at it as an instructor perspective and saying, okay, you're an instructor, be able to critique this. That's cool that he did that because it's just cool to see that the, that the DPE was kind of like, I know everyone has bad landings. You're an instructor mm -hmm. now. How, what would you do yeah. better in the future? How can you help your student out? He was probably more worried about what you're going to say than what the actual landing was like. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, and as an instructor, and this is one of the things that I tell my students as well, is if you are at any point in your flying planning on becoming a CFI, from the start, maybe even as early as your time as a student pilot, talk yourself through the maneuvers, talk yourself through what you're doing. Because one of the biggest challenges that students see when they move from commercial pilot to CFI is as soon as they go from left seat commercial pilot maneuvers to right seat commercial pilot maneuvers and having to explain the maneuver is they can do the maneuver perfectly, but they clam up when it comes time to actually instruct it. Definitely. And so I think having that opportunity and that experience in my head of saying, okay, I can talk through a landing. I can talk through what I just did to screw it up because I've been doing it for the last, you know, 150 hours of my flight time really helped me get to that point. Definitely. And communication is key in aviation. I mean, learning how to communicate will help you out. I mean, I know you lock yourself in a door for like four hours or a couple hours, but talking to your passengers, talking to your chief pilot, talking to people in general. And like you said, your communication helps you get your CFI. So like if you learn oh, yeah. how to communicate early, it's going to help you out so much in the future. And especially if you're ever going to take people up flying that have never been in a small airplane before. Um, 
you know, reassuring them of what actually goes on because they see small airplane, they think disaster sometimes and <laughs> being able to time. explain all the time, <laughs> being able to explain, Hey, here's what's happening with the airplane. Here's, you know, the air is going over the wing and magically lift is created. And there we go. Yeah. I waved some pixie dust and it all worked out. It's all magic. Yeah. Um, and so having the opportunity to do that, and I've had the opportunity to do that. I did it at Cirrus. I've done it through some other stuff of, um, you know, here's how the airplane flies. Here's what to do. You know, learning from that kind of experience is great because it makes you a much more conscious pilot of the people that you are flying around. Um, especially if you fly with someone that might be a little bit afraid of flying. Um, and so talking them through that is a, a fantastic kind of way to build um, rapport with your passengers, but also increase your skills as well because it keeps you on top of your game. Definitely. Now, the funniest thing about that, though, was explaining to people with the Cirrus how to operate the parachute. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, you have to explain that it's a system on the airplane that's a safety system. So, you know, telling them, in case I'm incapacitated for whatever reason, which as a 20 or 21-year-old, I was not going to be incapacitated for any reason. But <laughs> Never. here's how the parachute works. <laughs> So we, uh, so yeah, so graduate school, wrapping up graduate school, I had the opportunity to go to South Korea, um, for an international program through university called Korea Aerospace University. And through that program, I was also able to spend time working for Korean Air. Um, and for four weeks, I worked in Korean Air's, um, it's called LOSA, Line Operations Safety Audit. Um, which is a auditing division that sends out pilots into Korean Air's operations. So flight operations, um, simulator training, FTD training, ground schools. They even audited checklists and other documents that the airline had. Um, so I was basically dropped into that department for a month and was able to go in and audit and help audit um, ground school class, uh, FTD session, a simulator session, was not able to get into a real airplane, unfortunately, um, but was able to help uh, with some reports, helped edit a couple of documents, helped write a company manual, um, and so got to experience international aviation and an aviation safety department that's been kind of, in the last 10 years or so, the next kind of forefront of data analytics and flight safety data for companies around the world of putting a pilot in a cockpit who's looking for threats and errors to safety or that are safety related in the cockpit, uh, which was uh, it, in the U.S. It's a fantastically interesting field in the airline world. But then you add in working for an international company like Korean Air in South Korea, and it just kind of kicked into this next level of amazing insights and amazing experiences of working in a foreign company with a foreign culture that you are not at home in, um, you know, so differing office communication standards. And oh, definitely. I was just uh, in China for two weeks and I couldn't imagine working in that culture because I couldn't communicate to anyone. So it was just mm -hmm. so difficult. Well, and from there, you know, I was living there. I was living on at a university campus that was outside of Seoul. 
um, it was a very kind of cool opportunity. And the university since then has invited me back for several years as a visiting professor. So I've been back since then. Um, and, you know, the small world that is aviation, my coworkers, uh, I've had them come in and speak to classes here in the U.S. I've had them come in to speak to classes in Korea. And I even had one, uh, a captain of a 777 fly my flight home from Korea one year who was a coworker of mine. That's really cool. So it's really cool because you, you know, I had talked to him beforehand and he knew he was, had the flight. But it's really cool because all of a sudden, yeah, I didn't get the free upgrade. But uh, all of a sudden, he did tell all of the flight attendants. And all of a sudden, I had 10 flight attendants come up and shake my hand and introduce themselves to me and bring me the little bags of macadamia nuts uh, from first class to eat. It's the little things that count on those flights, right? It is. It is. And my seatmates were very happy with me at that point because <laughs> I, could, I couldn't eat 20 bags of macadamia nuts. Definitely so not. It was a cool experience. And while I was there for the first year working at Korean Air, um, a former professor from UND sent me an email and said, hey, um, here's a job posting for Ohio State. I think you should apply. Because at that point, I had had my life was in a storage unit. Um, in North Dakota, I had no plans after I got back from South Korea. Um, I had a couple of prospective offers, but I couldn't act on them because I was in South Korea and I needed to fill out my time there. So I was not really able to make a firm commitment to anything while I was there. Um, so, but while I was there, I got my resume together. I got a cover letter together and I sent it off to Ohio state. And while I was there, they said, Hey, we'd love to have you come out for an interview. Uh, can you, can you come out next week? And I said, no, I'm, I'm in South Korea right now. So it turned out it was kind of fortuitous. I was going to be in Cincinnati anyways for a friend's wedding the weekend after I got back. Um, so literally stepped off an airplane from South Korea in North Dakota on Saturday, uh, Friday, Saturday morning. I was on another airplane going to Cincinnati for a wedding Sunday. I got in the rental car and drove up to Columbus. Nice. First time in Columbus, did the job interview on Monday and drove back to Cincinnati. And a couple weeks later, got a job offer to come work for Ohio state. And I've been here ever since. And what year was that? Was that 2012, 2011? 2011. 2011. Fall of 2011. And so started in October of 2011 for OSU. And the role itself is kind of, it's kind of shifted and changed based on what our needs are and what our interest is. Um, the program, when you were in it in 2011, 2012, was very much in kind of survival mode. Right. Of we're not sure what the future is going to be. There's a little bit of question as to aviation at Ohio State. And with the really hard work of a bunch of colleagues here, as well as myself, too, um, we, we've changed that. We've turned it around to aviation will be a thing at Ohio State. Aviation is a thing at Ohio State. And we're going to try to make it better and better. Um, and as kind of teaching Teaching is obviously a core part of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. I, I teach an intro to aviation class, which is my absolute favorite class to teach because I get all kinds of different students, aviation majors and non-aviation majors, who are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed about the aviation world. And that's a really awesome kind of thing to have because you get kids that are passionate, that want to talk about airplanes, that want to ask questions about which airline should they work for. 
Um, and hopefully also saying to the kids that are questioning, do I want to become a pilot? Do I want to go to the airlines to work? Um, say, yeah, you, you should do that. You should go and yeah, your path is going to be very different than the other classmates in the class, but go chart your path in the aviation world. So getting the students on their first path in that intro to aviation class is a, a really awesome thing that I love because you do get to see them from their first time of like, here I am, not sure what I want to do with the world. And then five or six years later, I get to see them in the airport right. or on a flight, um, which has happened before where I've gotten on an airplane or I've been at the airport waiting and I run into former students who are jump seating to go somewhere. Yeah, it's got to be cool to, to know that you're playing a role in their aviation career and that you are trying, you're helping to harness their their love for aviation at that time because they're such an impressionable 19, 18, 20 year old and they think they know aviation, but they don't really know aviation because aviation is a crazy industry. And like you said, there's so many different paths that you can take. So it's really cool that you can help scope them to focus and try to figure out what their path is going to be. Absolutely. And you know, you know, we get students that'll say, I want to be an airline pilot, but then they'll come in and say, which airline is the best? <laughs> and so you have to say, well, you know, and if my industry partners are listening, I, I don't have a favorite airline because, you know, each airline and each company that you can work for, no matter whether you're an airline pilot or a janitor or a CEO, it doesn't matter. Each company has its own culture. Oh, yeah. And each person has their own preference with regard to what kind of culture they want to work in. And so when students come to me and ask, which airline should I go to work for? You know a bunch of different people from a bunch of different airlines that say, you know, I know which airlines I would probably prefer to work for if it were me, but I'm not you. You have to go out, you do an interview. Today, we've got cadet programs with six different airlines that you can sign up for. Um, no pressure, no questions asked until they start offering you money later on in the cadet program. But go experience that. Talk to alumni that are out. Go talk to guest speakers that are out there uh, that we have to come into class. That Talk to them about what they like about their company. Talk to them about what they don't like. Do an internship. Do several internships. Um, because that in itself is a semester-long interview for you to interview with the company and also for the company to show why they, why you should work there. Um, so, you know, looking at that and saying, okay, you've got all this crazy stuff out there. Go intern, go intern with a company, go do a, a cadet program activity with a company, go get to know a couple pilots because you'll hear there's a lot of different stuff out there um, for each company and each company is going to have their own thing. You can also go out and read the employee forums. There are yeah. a couple of major ones out there. Be careful with always, the forums, though. <laughs> always, always say, you know, my my old comment is friends don't let friends read pilot forums. No. Um, but the thing about that is it's a good way to kind of get some general information. You just need to carry around a big, giant-sized grain of salt with you oh, yeah. every time because you've got people that are on the internet under anonymous usernames that are usually uh, a little bit more dramatic than what reality actually is. Definitely, yeah. People seem to say the worst on the internet. People who have 
I've noticed that it's usually people who really, really love the company or have really been burned and want to like watch the company burn to the ground that comment on forums. Absolutely. They, it's, it's that either, yeah, the company is fantastic or they're, you know, paid to do positive things for the company or it's people that say last one out, turn up the lights. Yeah. So, you know, there are a lot of other things that are out there that are part of my job. I've been the one that's responsible for doing our industry relations, which is a fantastic opportunity. I love it because, you know, I'm not an airline pilot. I've never been an airline pilot, but I get to go out and work with people from all over the airline. Um, and that is something that as an airline pilot, I probably would never have had the opportunity to have done, um, to go in and talk with an in-flight department about their safety issues or about their checklist issues with their flight attendants. You know, that's something that I've done. I've had the opportunity to sit in on meetings about that, to go and meet with people that are running the network operations center or the operations control center for the airline and, talk to dispatchers and operations people and see the nerve center of each one of these carriers in operation. Um, so, you know, the industry relations side, the goals behind that is to try to find careers for students. Um, you know, and the ideal path is that if we start giving the students opportunities in college to meet these people and experience things like internships. It helps the companies onboard them later on, which saves them money, which is good. Um, it also better prepares our students to get out into the industry and be more successful when they apply for jobs and when they interview for jobs. Definitely. There's nothing like getting your own kind of experience. I know Coach Meyer actually got me to go see NetJets and go see how NetJets operates and meet with some people at NetJets. And it, it kind of just got me to, I was always an airline guy and I want to go to the airlines, want to do the airlines, always airlines. Uh -huh. And I got the NetJets and saw how it worked and saw how the culture that they had and the people that were there. And it kind of mm -hmm. started being swayed toward NetJets. And it was just cool to see just, I've never, didn't even know really what NetJets did, but once I went yeah. and formed my own opinion, like you said, I kind of found this out on my own. I found that NetJets might actually be an option that I would be interested in. Exactly. And that's, you know, it's where you lean on your connections. And in your case, your connection was a little bit more powerful than mine, perhaps, <laughs> uh, which does remind me of my favorite Justin story. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, was when you came into my office asking me for a letter of recommendation and then <laughs> also said that you'd be getting a letter of recommendation from your coach, which I thought meant your quarterback's coach. But then you asked, you said, if you get it from Urban or Jim Trestle. Yeah. <laughs> Hedge it. Hedge your bets. Get both. Yeah. Well, um, well, side note on that, my quarterback coach at the time is now the head coach of the University of Texas. So I know. <laughs> so you should have. Tom Herman, too. You could have just hedged your bets and got all three. Yeah. Well, I'll get um, all three and then so I'll add you to the list, too. There we go. And yeah. then it's like, who's this aviation schmo? You know? <laughs> uh, so those kind of opportunities to go in and plant yourself and take the opportunity to go do tours do other experiences, which is where for younger people that are out there that are looking at colleges, um, or if you're a university student that's out there listening to this, get involved in aviation student organizations on campus. There were a ton out there at UND. There are several here at Ohio State. 
each university has various different chapters and student organizations that are putting on events and tours that are will give you access to things that you would not otherwise consider or be able to find. Um, you know, student groups will go on tours of the Columbus airport. They'll drive to Cincinnati. They've driven as far as Atlanta to go do a tour of Atlanta Hartsfield. Um, and that then they also have been to airline headquarters too. And the airlines now are putting on these amazing events for cadets where they'll fly you down to the airline's headquarters and take you on a tour. They'll let you fly sims. They'll let you do everything else. So, you know, the airlines are starting to see the value of nurturing professional pilots from the outset instead of just expecting them to come and apply once they hit their minimum amount of hours. For sure. And that's really cool that they're willing to do that. Because like you said, when you were making the decision of whether to, to become a pilot, to fly for a career or to take the assistantship, there just weren't any jobs and the airlines were not doing no. these kind of things to help recruit no. people to get into this industry. No, I mean, we've seen cadet of program events. I, I participated in one where 13 OSU students flew down to Dallas with PSA Airlines. And we had lunch at the Aviation Museum at American's headquarters. And the president of PSA spoke and the president of American Airlines spoke That's to incredible. a group of about 100 kids. And, you know, when I was a college student, I would never have imagined that the president of a regional carrier let alone the president of a major carrier would walk into a room, introduce himself to every table, and then give a pretty, a really inspirational speech to a group of students. And you can bet out of that the students were going, wow, this is a company that, you know, has this kind of crazy cool stuff. And there are more companies than just American that are doing that. Um, so you get this opportunity to, do that where it was never there before. Um, so, you know, if you're looking at this, it's a very exciting time to be in the airline world and to be in the aviation industry in general. Now, I talk a lot about pilots, and this is a pilot podcast, but I also say we know pilots are getting older. But if you empirically look at your coworkers in the aviation world as a whole, or the next time you go walk around an airport, or if you walk around an airline headquarters, you will see that the industry as a whole is getting older um, and is getting closer and closer to retirement. So, you know, the opportunities out there for people that are pilots, that are non-pilots are endless. Oh, definitely. If you just love aviation, I mean, now is the perfect time to do anything, whether you want to be a dispatcher, whether you want to try to be, if your dream is to be a CEO of an airline, the opportunities, Absolutely. like you said, are endless. Yeah. They're, I mean, the stuff that, students are able to do just students in their internship wise we've had students that have gone to internships in places and departments and airlines like network planning which is figuring out where the puzzle pieces the airplanes go to maximize the amount of money for the airline to make um, that have run systems within that that are responsible for scheduling hubs um, with oversight and with guidance but they've been almost entirely responsible for scheduling a hub for a week. That's really cool. Um, you know, and we've had other students that have gone and done internships uh, with other companies, with corporate operators. We have a student that uh, did an internship a few years ago with a corporate operator here in Columbus that 
uh, as part of his day-to-day work, he got to fly. They have a shuttle that runs uh, between Columbus and New York, but which is always fun to go fly on. But he uh, also, they were responsible for, he was responsible for helping with dealing with European emissions uh, trading scheme stuff. And to deal with that and to deal with operating in the European regulatory environment, they had a, a multi-step process that took someone several days to complete. And he stepped in with his knowledge that he gained in a class through OSU. He stepped in and he formulated a, I think it was a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet with some formulas on it that took that process from a day or two to a minute. That's incredible. Yeah. So, you know, your opportunities for real life practical changes, even as a college student, are out there. It just takes you going out and making those first steps. And there is a very distinct difference between students and you'll see them in the the flying world too. People that'll just passively say, well, this is kind of my job and I'm just going to go fly. So you've got those or, you know, in our student world, they're just, I don't know if I want to, but I'm just going to go and passively do this versus the students that go and actively seek out opportunities. Oh, yeah. And Um, you actively seeing out those opportunities is only going to help you out in the future. Because if you actively go try to get your flight hours as fast as possible, you're going to be higher in the seniority list. If you actively try to go meet people, that's a bigger community that you're building to help you get the jobs you want to get in the future. Mm Mm-hmm. And also actively going out and applying for scholarships and applying for internships. Definitely. I'm always I'm always amazed when I hear back from especially the industry nonprofits that are out there, uh, which have scholarships that are you know it's a thousand dollars, two thousand dollars, fifteen hundred dollars, or maybe even up to five or six thousand dollars. They're small numbers comparative to the large cost of flight training, but they add up. And you'd be surprised at how many of these scholarships they might say. Well, we only, we have five scholarship positions. We only received six applications. Right. Cause everyone just thinks that it's impossible to get the scholarship yeah. or a thousand dollars isn't going to do anything, but a thousand dollars is going to help you out so much in the long run. It, it's, you'd be dumb to Absolutely. turn down free money. Absolutely. So, you know, that's the difference. And then the other thing is I hear students say, well, it's always the same people that win. So I'm not going to apply. And you have to look at them and say the reason why it's the same people that always win is because they're the only ones that turn in their applications. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, you know, with that, it's it's a, an interesting process. But, uh, you know, there have been a lot of kind of unique opportunities that have come out of that. And the industry relations side of the spectrum for me as part of my work is a lot of fun. It brings a great opportunity for me to kind of mend or match the teaching that I'm doing in the classroom with the cutting edge things and also say, yeah, I could be an airline pilot right now. And I still kind of get those pangs in the back of my head where it's like I'm in an airport and I'm in airports quite a bit. I travel quite a bit for work and for other things. And, you know, sitting in the airport terminal and seeing people that I may or may not know, and I do run into people I know in the airports fairly often, um, but seeing the pilots walk by in their uniforms and thinking wistfully, gosh, that could be me. But also realizing that with the job that I have now, I'm loving the opportunities that I have to go out and do as much as I can. And the only thing I really wish I could do more is fly. 
Yeah. Uh, I'm not flying regularly now. I keep my CFI certificate active because you never want to let your CFI certificate lapse because you have to go do a check ride again. Yeah, don't do that. Especially since it's so don't easy to renew it. You can just yeah, go online. Sit online. You spend three days. Couch, Netflix. I don't say net. Sorry, not Netflix. <laughs> wing, um, couch, training course, 16 hours. You're done. Yeah. Um, and you get it for two more but, years. And you get it for two more years and you're set. Um, but the, you know, with that, you know, I, that's one thing that's probably my one biggest, I don't even know if it's regret or if I could go back in time and talk to past Martin about this, but to say, to, you know, always consider what if I had made that active choice when I was in grad school to flight instruct instead of do grad school and where would I be and what would I be doing? And how would it be different? Because a lot of the other stuff that I've kind of wanted to be interested in helping out with or work on um, is, well, I don't have my ATP. I don't have the hours for my ATP. I'm sitting right now at about 500 or 500 or so hours of flight time. Um, and so, you know, thinking in the back of my head, how do I get a thousand hours of flight time? Right. Where should I do it? Why can't I do it? Or what's stopping me from doing that? Um, so, you know, that's kind of the one kind of hard precipice that I'm sitting in. The other challenge is purely academic and that I don't have a PhD degree. And if you want that professor with tenure thing that's out there in the winds, you know, to, to make uh, my Jewish mother happy, I don't know, <laughs> everybody else, but, you know, get that professor so you can be the actual professor. Um, you need a PhD and that's a lot of hard work. Definitely. Um, and it's a lot of investment in time and effort. So, you know, sitting at this kind of precipice of no ATP, no PhD, what should I do as the next major step? So it's kind of funny. It seems like you're at the same decision process as you were when you were leaving college. You're like, do I do exactly. the assistantship or do I go fly? So it's really funny exactly. that you find yourself in the same predicament kind of. Yeah. Even though we are desperately short of instructors out at the airport. And if you want to come to Columbus and flight instruct, uh, if anyone out there in listener land would love to come flight instructor for the OSU airport, we'll, we'll talk. Um, <laughs> but email me. Well, we'll get you set up with an interview. Uh, but the other problem is, you know, by contract and by the way things work at Ohio State, you know, I am contracted to be faculty full time. Yeah. So I can't flight instruct as part of that. So is other things come up. I've had the opportunity. We've had some research projects that have come up. So I've been able to fly with those. But unfortunately, I can't regularly flight instruct because I'm so busy here on campus. And usually, even if it's just me getting out to an airplane, by the time Friday or Saturday or Sunday rolls around, I need to catch up on the rest of my life and right. the other parts of my life. So, you know, and it's expensive if you're just kind of paying for it one off. And so, and I've got a house, I've got a car, you know, all those fun adult things to pay for. <laughs> Gotta um, love the adult life. Yeah, that's adulting is so overrated. Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes it is, especially but, when you want to fly airplanes. Yeah, but you're so, you know, it's kind of like, well, I'm happy with what I'm doing here. There's some other projects kind of percolating out there, other cool things that are kind of percolating out there as perspective things, but they're not coming as quickly as I would like them to. So, yeah. you know, it's that you're a millennial. I'm on the senior end of the millennial scale, but it's sometimes that millennial impatience of realizing that the system itself doesn't necessarily move as fast as we'd like it to. Right. I want it now. Come on. Yeah. 
I, I need that instant gratification now. Yeah. Uh, I don't need the participation ribbon for it. No, just I don't. Give it to me. Yeah, just yeah. give it to me. I don't want the participation <laughs> award. I want the job at American Airlines now. Yeah. Well, yeah. We'll talk. We'll make that happen. Yeah. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, so, you know, that kind of, that's kind of the, the way to go about things. And that's one piece of advice that I might be able to give is be willing to put in the effort, but be willing to also understand that some of this stuff is an incredible long payoff. You know, we, uh, the 16, 18, 20 year olds that I see today, they're saying, I want this stuff today. You go, no, you can't just go and get that today. You're going to have to wait. It's going to be a fantastic payoff. You know, today's freshmen, the freshmen that are going to be walking in the door of my intro to aviation class in a couple weeks, realistically could be flying. If they do internships, if they do cadet programs, it's entirely feasible that in seven years they could be flying in the right seat of an American or Delta or United or Southwest plane. Definitely. Um, it is, you know, by the time they're 30, they could have a mainline job. Which and is incredible. Mainline job, which is incredible. It's something we could have never thought of when I was in college. No, definitely not. Like you would be just starting to look at 31 or 32 to jump to the airlines. And I had classmates that when the majors started ramping up and they did an internship, they were hired at mainline carriers at 25 and 26. It's incredible. Yeah, it's even crazy how it changed since I was in college. Because when I was in college, it was like when the everything was starting to recover a little bit. And I seemed yeah. to be still just on the backside of the bad end. And I got all my jobs when they started. Once I got this job at when I'm flying Pilatuses, they, the regional mm-hmm. started paying more. And it's like, oh, man, if I, wait, if I had the time now, I could have done this and gotten paid this. But it's okay. Mm-hmm. Like, it, the, the, There's no perfect path to this aviation career. No. And you take the one that works best for you and just wait. Like, You're going to get your payoff eventually. Like you said, it's going to take a while, but you have to know that going into it. There's no instant gratification. It's hard work. It's dedication. It's putting your head down and going to work because it's going to take you a while to build those hours and get to yep. where you want to go. And it's also taking the time to learn how to know the system and to game the system to your benefit too. For sure. Um, you know, I... And this is where when people start talking about costs of things, I've got friends that are working for the mainline carriers that will be able to pick up trips, especially during the summer, where the crew scheduling will call them and say, hey, let's make a deal. And they'll make $3,000 in one three or four day trip. It's incredible. Like, wow, <laughs> you just made a third. You just made a third of your private pilot's license right. in three days. Yeah. Like, and granted, there are taxes involved, but like the payoff is coming and the yeah. payoff is there. Um, so, you know, it's just a matter of taking that time to do that and also balancing the fact that there's lifestyle trade-offs comparative to flight trade-offs. You know, I know that the pilot to pilot Instagram story, there's a lot of kind of fun stuff where you talk about what goes on during your downtime. Yeah. Like, Oh, it looks like Justin's in a crew room right now (laughs) for five hours. Yeah. For five hours. But you take advantage of that. You snooze a little bit. You maybe go do something. You know, that lifestyle is one thing. If you go to an airline, your lifestyle is going to be something different. Do you want to go to an airline where you're going to be doing a lot of four-day trips? Do you want to go to an airline where you can bid for a lot of two-day trips, a lot of out-and-back stuff or stand-ups where you go on overnights? Um, for me, one of the other things is I am a university professor, well, university faculty. I'm not officially a professor, but university faculty and the lifestyle that comes with that. My job is not necessarily nine to five Monday through Friday. 
my job, I do a lot of grading in the evenings. I do a lot of class prep in the evenings. I meet with students at kind of odd times. I've met with students on weekends. I've been out at the airport on weekends. I've traveled to conferences. But we also get, we make a little bit less, but we also get summers off. We get two weeks off or three weeks off during the winter time. So during the summer, I've been able to, the three years prior, I was in South Korea for five weeks or six weeks. Um, as a visiting professor. This year, I spent four weeks uh, house-sitting for a family member on their houseboat in Seattle. It's incredible. Which was a terrible experience. I'm no, sure. it was great. It was fantastic because <laughs> you get, you know, Kenmore Air seaplanes flying right outside your window and Seattle seaplanes, seaplanes flying and taking off right outside your house on Lake Union. Um, so, you know, that kind of thing, it's a trade-off. I know I'm not going to make mainline airline pay at some point in my career, but... I also get three months off. Which is pretty incredible too. It's pretty incredible to be able to do things. Um, So, you know, that's, it works for me. And I don't know if going to an airline to fly would work for me. Um, I also know that I, here at Ohio State, I could probably have a, a bigger impact on airline hiring than if I were to go for an airline myself, which I like facilitating the journey for students to go from, Freshmen looking at the world with curious eyes and into aviation professional, whether they're pilots or otherwise. Um, and it is a journey for a lot of these students. They might go through issues with medical certificates. They might go through issues with their personal lives. Um, they might go through issues where they have their mid midlife college crisis, which it happens. <laughs> where yes, it does. I've, I had it. I've... It happens to every student, like sophomore, junior year. Junior year usually is where you go, what the hell am I doing? Yep. It's like, it's happening. Um, I'm graduating soon. What am I going to do? Yeah. So, you know, helping students work through that, helping students go out and find success. And that is, it's one of the coolest parts of the job when you see it all kind of come together and click. And then they go out and afterwards they go out and they find some great success. And for students, there's no, I, I like to say, you know, other than being there, showing up, taking advantage of every opportunity that's out there, uh, you know, we do our best. And I think most universities are the same way where they do their best to help facilitate those connections and facilitate that opportunity for you. I know we do it here because I push for it to say in my intro to aviation class, there's going to be 10 to 15 guest speakers in the course of a semester from all over the industry, airports, airlines, corporate aviation. Um, other consulting, other parts of the world to say, here's what I do. Here's how I got here. Several years ago, I was sitting in your shoes and here's how I got to where I was because it gives students the opportunity to have multiple paths to where they're going. Definitely. And it's like we talked about earlier, it's important for them to see how many paths there are in aviation because someone might think they want to fly, but find out that they love being on the business side and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So you need to have that exposure. It's just like any, it's just like a normal kid going to college. You need the exposure to everything to see what you want to do and what you want to get out of your aviation career. Absolutely. And, you know, don't be afraid to do, take a day and go shadow somebody else in their other career path. You might learn something or take the opportunity to do that. You know, I think one of the best things that pilots can do is go and learn what a flight attendant does. Go and learn what a dispatcher does in the operations center. Go see the operations center because then you get when the dispatcher calls you up and says, no, we can't do this. Or the operations person says, no, we need to hold the flight. 
And you say, why are we taking a delay? Well, if you look, there's a tour group of 30 people that are going to an airport that we only have one flight a week to. And so we're going to hold the flight for 20 minutes to make sure that they get on to make sure that we don't have, you know, 35 middle schoolers in the airport crying because they can't go <laughs> on their spring break trip. Yep. We um, need the good press right now. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, learning that kind of thing, because I, I'm going to get, you're going to get some funny comments about this, but, you know, I always say, if you want to know the opposite of what's going on in the industry, talk to an airline pilot. Yeah. <laughs> um, because the rumor mill within the airline world is strong and the rumor mill amongst pilots, especially are is incredible like you will hear things that are so completely untrue and so blatantly untrue but yet passed off as being completely legitimate so the more you can learn about the operation of the other parts of the company the better and um, it also help you with your understanding of how a uh, say an airline works so when you come to yourself and you hear those rumors you can kind of throw things out as not being true or not holding any credit because you're like, no, that's crazy. That's not how an airline works. Why would they ever do that? Absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. It's you're like, Oh, well, okay. That's not what I learned about when I sat in on the, the dispatchers and when I met with the dispatchers that are doing things. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it gives you that opportunity to kind of do that and realize that for the most part, Everybody at the company is existing to to do their job and to do what they do. No one shows up to work to say, I'm going to shut the company down or I'm going to make Justin's life a living hell um, or whoever your name is. But maybe yeah. Justin. Yeah. <laughs> um, specifically but, Justin. Specifically Justin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that kind of opportunity is there. And. You know, I teach a labor relations class here at Ohio State to talk about the, the regulatory system and kind of the practicalities of how airline labor works, which if the pilots out there don't know, it's a very different system than what you're normally used to or what your expectations might be when you hear of unions. Um, so the goal in my teaching this is not to be pro or anti-union, but instead to say, here's the operating environment that you're in. Here's the practical reality of what you're in. And there's a good chance that if you're a pilot, especially, you will work with people who are in management. You'll also work with people who are in the union. And here's how to work within that. And we also need a lot more of the level-headed people on both sides to say, okay, we understand the company's here for this. We understand the union's here for this. Let's try to come to some amicable solution that meets everybody's needs. Right. Let's try to make this airline as enjoyable of one to work for as we can. Yes. Especially when comparative to, um, you know, people that say, I'm just going to burn the company down. Yeah. I'm like, okay, that's, let's, that's not productive for you. It's not productive for the other employees at the company. That would be not a, not a good thing to have. Yeah. It's okay if you ruin your career, but don't let it affect my career. Yeah, exactly. For sure. No, it's, it's, there's so many different personalities in aviation that it's important to know and it's important to figure out how to talk with other people. Like we talked about earlier, it's important to communicate with everyone, important to figure out how to read people and how to understand how people work. Because mm -hmm. whether you are a dispatcher, a flight attendant, you're a pilot, you're a CEO, you're going to be mm -hmm. dealing with so many different people and you got to make it work. It's the only way it's going to, yeah. the airline will and, work well. 
And really, you know, the communication side is being able to as well tell your story and being able to say what you need to say in a, in a way that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you know, I talk to students about what's your elevator speech. Yeah. Uh, you can sum it up in 30 seconds or less because that's what you're going to get in an elevator ride. Um, but, you know, having that opportunity because you never know who you're going to come up with and or come into contact with out there. Um you know, having been stuck in elevators with CEOs one on one, if it's happened where it's the CEO of a carrier and you're like, uh, what do you do? <laughs> um, so, you know, what do you talk about? What do you, what do you, how do you handle that? Or how do you take the opportunity to introduce yourself to someone or the CEO comes up and you're flying one day and he's on the airplane? How do you handle yourself? How do you handle yourself if you need to talk to a dispatcher about a certain issue? So communication in and of itself is also significant because, yeah, you need to be able to get the point across in a way that hopefully doesn't tear down someone else. Yeah, and keep emotions out of it as much as possible if you can, too. It's one thing that I've learned is don't come at anything when you're mad. Take a day. Take however long it takes. Well, cool. Well, I have this um, quick little rapid fire section that I'm going to ask you if you don't mind. Okay. It's uh, really easy. It's just a couple quick questions. You say the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. What's your favorite airplane? <laughs> BAE 146 or Avro RJ 100. Sounds good. What's your favorite airport? It can be one that you've flown to, and then you can have one that you maybe like a commercial airport, even a passenger in. Okay. Favorite airport that I have flown to myself. Uh, one of the, my favorites is. Um, the Duluth Sky Harbor Airport. Okay. Never um, been there before. It's built on a islands peninsula thing on the shore or on Lake Superior. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. All right. And what about favorite airport that you've been to commercially? Ooh, that one's another tough, uh, I would say probably Amsterdam Schiphol. Okay. Once again, another one I've never been to, but I want to go there too. So okay, gotta check gotta it out. Gotta add that one up. Yep. Yeah. All right, what's your what's a favorite aviation Instagram account that you follow? Ooh, that one is hard. You can list a couple if you have a couple. I pilot to pilot. No. Hey, uh, hey. <laughs> hey that that one that one would we call like buttering up. Yeah. Um <laughs> no. I have a bunch of friends that are pilots that fly quite yeah. a bit. Um so I really enjoy seeing the the friends and people that I went to college with. And I don't know if they would appreciate me calling them out. Some of them are private, but <laughs> I do good. like um, the Kenmore Air and Seattle seaplanes. Yeah, I love um, following them. Having been there and having flown with both of them over the summer, it's like in the back of my mind, it's like, God, that would be the perfect summer job of um, going and flying these airplanes. Yeah, that would be a lot of fun. Um. So I do appreciate and enjoy both of those. I like the airline feeds as well. Um, and so they're good too. Yeah, for sure. All right, here's one for you. Do you prefer longer trips or shorter trips? Would you rather fly for four hours or would you rather fly for like 30 minutes? Oh, commercially or myself? We'll do yourself. Myself? Yeah. Um, medium range. Yeah. So a couple hours. Okay. What about flying on a long on a big plane? Big plane for a long. If I'm in the front of the airplane in first or business class, longer is better. Oh yeah, we. I will actually. Yeah, I will book flights. Especially going to Europe is always a pain in the butt if you're leaving from the East Coast. So I've looked at going to Europe, and I will fly 
west before flying back east to go to Europe because it's a longer time on the airplane. There you go. When my wife and I flew to China, we flew standby, but we bought business class upgrade seats. So if there was yes. a seat in business, we would get that. And we got business class to China and back from China. You and that was lucked out. 15 hours each way sitting in a business <laughs> class seat with like a four course meal. It was the most incredible thing I've ever done. Last summer, I got to experience the mind-blowing experience of flying in Thai Airways first class. Oh, wow. That which makes me really jealous. Beyond description. I mean, just they have a, they drive you through the airport. You get a massage in the airport on your way <laughs> to Bangkok. They serve Dom Perignon champagne. It was just the extreme of everything, and that was fantastic. That sounds like so, a, great, a great way to travel. Yep. Um, so yeah, that would be longer is always better for in the front of the airplane. But if I'm in coach in the back row of the airplane, shorter is better. Uh, as fast <laughs> as possible. Get it over with. Yep. Yep. <laughs> All right. Would you personally rather fly over cities, mountains, the country, or the coasts? Oh, mountains. Mountains? Yep. And does that go back to you growing up in Denver and just being around the mountains? Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. All right. Do you like Piper or Cessna better? <laughs> um, or Cirrus. You can throw Cirrus in there since you have so much time. Cirrus is a fantastic airplane, but I do have a, a dog that I named Piper, so uh, I might have go. to go with Piper for that one. What's your favorite Piper aircraft? Uh, the Cub. The Cub. Obviously. Yeah. yeah. Cubs I'm going to cool be a one. stereotypical. If there is a way to describe yourself as a basic aviation person, that would be <laughs> you're so basic. Although, <laughs> although the the Piper Super Cruiser would be an airplane that uh, would be of interest to me because I could probably fit in the front seat. <laughs> there you go. That that helps. <laughs> yep. All right. What's a plane you've always wanted to fly? It could be an airliner or it could be just a normal general aviation aircraft. The P fifty one Mustang. Cool. And what is one thing you always have to have on you while flying? Noise-canceling headphones. Boom. I 100% agree there. Those are yes. that was the greatest investment I ever made in my life. My Bose A20s just yep. completely changed that, the game. And that's as a passenger or as a pilot. I've yeah. got Lightspeed Zulus that I use as a pilot. I have Bose QC15s that I use as a passenger. And both have changed my life for the better. Yeah. When we were traveling to China... And we were flying business class. They hand out noise-canceling headphones that you can use, and it was unbelievable. Yeah, that uh, is – yeah. it. And it also, if you're flying, it you plug them in, and that way the annoying person next to you knows not to talk to you. Yeah. So. Back off, man. Yep. yep. <laughs> I got to listen to my pilot-to-pilot -pilot podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right, Martin. We're pretty much getting to the end of the podcast. I have one more question for you. I am an alma mater of Ohio State. You work at Ohio State. To the person listening here deciding where to go to college and where to pursue aviation, why Ohio State? Can you give me an answer to why Ohio State in about three to five minutes? Okay, I could probably do it in a minute or two, but we'll we'll go through this. Obviously, we come from biased perspectives, alumni and people that are paid for Ohio State. But, Definitely. Uh, the, obviously. Uh, <laughs> the, so Ohio State Aviation offers a student an opportunity to major in three different degrees through three different colleges. So you can do a Bachelor of Science in Aviation through our College of Engineering, 
a Bachelor of Arts degree through our College of Arts and Sciences and a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration through the Fisher College of Business at OSU. So depending on your interests and your academic strengths, you can find a degree that works best for you. In addition to that, you know, and you should go out if you are a high school junior or a high school senior, go visit college campuses. We talked earlier about culture and how a company's culture is very different depending on the company. The same thing applies for universities. Your university experience, you're going to be investing a lot of money and a lot of time in being there. And you're going to go and look at the various different offerings that the university has. Ohio State, we are a Big Ten school. We have a lot of things that come from being a Big Ten school that you might not have opportunities to do at other universities. I say from the non-aviation side, from the student life perspective, everything from anthropology club to zoology club. So, you know, thousands of student groups that are out there. We've got several great aviation student groups. We've got access to big aviation companies here in Columbus, like NetJets, for internships and for other opportunities for guest speakers. Um, and so for a student that is looking at a program, Ohio State offers the Big Ten quality education, the large school education, with a lot of really fantastic opportunities that you may or may not get at other universities. Um, and also, you have a pretty good football team to boot. So Go Bucks. Go Bucks. I got to throw <laughs> that one out. There. Of course. And, but, you know, the opportunities for students that are on campus far exceed uh, any that I've really encountered at many other aviation universities out there. Um, and, you know, for me, I have the benefit. I work with other universities fairly regularly. I went to a very different university. Um, and, you know, my time at UND gave me a lot of great gifts. It equipped me to work in this environment. Um, it equipped me with the skills and knowledge that I have to be successful. And that's what you should be looking at for your education as well as picking a place that you will be successful. And I hope that that school might be Ohio State. You know, it could be any of the others, too. But we want you to come to Ohio State because obviously if you're listening to Justin and seeing some of the fantastic things that he's done, I would at least give maybe partial credit to the aviation program for that. Oh, for um, sure. I would also give credit to the other parts of the university as well because you're not just coming to be a pilot. You're coming to the university to learn and to gain a liberal arts education that you would probably not – you would get anywhere, but – Ohio State's opportunities and facilities are fantastic. For sure. And it also helps that they have just broken or just starting to break ground on a new terminal and new education at the airport, correct? Yep. A new terminal, new flight education facility. We also have taken delivery of five brand new Cessna 172s. We also were selected this year as one of Cessna's Top Hawk schools. So we have a Top Hawk floating around the airport too. Um, and so we do operate out of one of the few university owned and operated airports in the United States. Um, so as a pilot, uh, you might have the opportunity to go work at the airport too. As a matter of fact, nights and weekends, the airport is pretty much run by students who work in customer service, line service, airfield maintenance, as well as dispatching student flights too. And that's a great opportunity for you to gain some aviation experience while you're still in college. Definitely great exposure at Ohio State. You can 
pretty much do anything you want in aviation at Ohio State. And you have the backing of a big school, big alumni base, and great companies Absolutely. that are local and actual and regionals have bases in Columbus. And there's mm-hmm. just a lot to do. It's a great place to go. And of course, yeah. they have a great football team. So go Bucks. Well, Martin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's awesome having hey. you. It's it's cool that you were my teacher in what was that five years, six years ago, and now here we are yeah. talking on the podcast. And if there's anything I can do to help out Ohio State Aviation or help you out in the future, let me know. I'd love to. But I loved hearing your story. It's really cool to hear just the different paths that you took and how you took the information and you had two different ways to go and the decisions you made and why you made those decisions. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of interesting to see how those are coming back up in today. Yep. So you're still facing that same decision if you want to go fly mm-hmm. or if you want to continue down this path. So I wish you the mm-hmm. best in everything you do. And it's really cool to see the work that you do at Ohio State as I've seen firsthand and also seen how it affects people that you have had in your classes. And I know that you've had an impact on aviation and aviators. So continue doing what you're doing and I wish you the best. And thanks again for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you, Justin. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my insights with all your listeners. No problem. I appreciate it. Aviation, that is a wrap of episode 17 of the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I want to go and give a huge shout out to my Patreon supporters, Philip Sutphin, Daniel Morrissey, Josh Ortiz, and another huge shout out to Patrick Wink for buying our first swag. Thank you guys so much. We appreciate your support. You guys are awesome and you help us create this podcast. We're trying to get to 100 reviews by the end of the year. You can make that possible. Go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes or you can comment, DM us, visit our Patreon page. Just visit all of our platforms and let us know what you think. Leave us some reviews. Let us know. Give us the feedback because we, like I said earlier, we want to create the best content possible. Guys, that is it. Thank you for your time. Can't wait for next week. It's going to be Jeffrey the Pilot. It's going to be a big one. Happy flying, Aviation. Peace.